Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you are now listening to postmortem with mick garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts literally to the renowned horror director writer and producer now here's your host mick garris this is the Postmortem Podcast, and I'm Mick Garris. There's something special about dark cinema, which perhaps is just a fancy-schmancy name for horror movies. But they truly have the potential to be something much more than just scary stories. Aside from being just good stories, the horror genre offers more possibilities for our unique, artistic vision than almost any other. A good one hits you in a deeper place than a drama, a comedy, or a western. The tools of horror cinema, its very vocabulary can be tapped to go beyond the merely real into the hyper-real, even the surreal. Telling tales that seek to illustrate your fears, the ones that come from the subconscious as well as the conscious, calls for a visual imagination, a sense of bringing deeper than the everyday to life, to take the nightmare world and give it birth, to reach deep down into what scares you and puts you face to face with it. It's not surprising that many filmmakers in the horror genre are also gifted in other arts. John Carpenter is touring the world with his band after a lifetime of scoring his own films. Guillermo del Toro is a masterful painter and sketch artist. Joe Dante is a talented cartoonist. Wes Craven was a novelist as well as a filmmaker. It seems like almost everyone I know in the genre has talents outside of the filmmaking world, and I don't find that in other genre. At its best, Horror is metaphorical, phantasmagorical, and a blank slate for a questing creative mind. Today's guest is no exception. David Aldrin Slade is a uniquely gifted film and photographic artist who first drew attention with his music videos, ultimately leading him to his first feature, The Sledgehammer Powerhouse, that introduced most of us to Ellen Page, Hard Candy. But he's followed it up with a remarkable slate of unique, stylized visions of terror and the outre. Well, first of all, do you play an instrument? No. Um, I, I am musically dead. I mean, I know I love music. Um, yes, I yes, I like synthesizers and software music, but I, I am not a musician by any stretch of the imagination. No. But music proved to be your entree into filmmaking. I love music. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's funny. Um, I started out uh, as a journalist writing and. I was a BMXer because I'm like 15 or however old I am then, 16, and 17, still doing it. Uh, and I'm doing writing, you know, um, skateboard reports and things like that. And, mm. and it's a really easy step into punk rock music, which I love. 
and I was living in Sheffield in the middle of England, well, the, the uh, north of England, Midlands is what it's called, mm-hmm. um, and it was around the time of the big industrial music revolution, which was like cement mixer noise right. music with guitars and electronic music um, to give you some kind of roadmap. Joy Division had ended, New Order were beginning. Sheffield was this kind of, because it was a steel town, mm-hmm. it was one of the big staple industry steel towns. And in the Second World War, it was bombed to hell. So it was flattened and it just became this whole industrial cultural scene took over and it's related to being bombed to hell mm-hmm. as well as, you know, the fact that it, it, you know, it's a working class town essentially. And so I was in the midst of all of this culture that was happening. Uh, I was writing subversive culture, very subversive culture. Absolutely. Um, warp records who are a very kind of uh, experimental electronic music label came out of that as well um there was this thing called the sheffield independent film unit which was a um just a place where they just taught you and it was like a socialist place right Mm. so because it was that kind of place a marxist who lived there um and so i would go there and because it was free and i learned by doing i kind of um found that if i could fix things like you know uh back in the day before computers you know um um it's gonna make me feel feel really old <laughs> just look at me and then you won't feel so no old. man you look younger than me these days <laughs> Mick, you look you're looking very good these days <laughs> i gotta say <laughs> um yeah i don't yeah i have a young boy so my eyes are you know, <laughs> that's my right, bags the baby. just grown <laughs> under my eyes but um so where was it the yeah it, it was one of those things where like you know uh the editorial was analog machines that had to be sync locked and stuff like that. And people would always cannibalize and pull all the cables apart. And I knew how to put them all together again. So I do that. So you were mechanically oriented. Yeah, I was, I was, I was able to do that. And I was also writing and I was trying to, you know, I I was trying to understand film by watching because I didn't go to film school. Mm -hmm. And so I figured if I could figure out how this thing works i could understand it how if i could figure out how to do this thing i could understand it because i didn't do that whole kind of literary criticism thing where you come in at film school and you learn about mise-en-scene versus montage <laughs> and all of those things you just, i just had a camera and I'd let go and i was doing I, I was doing a degree i was doing it in fine art but they allowed us to work in any media we wanted to and they had this you know, media department with video cameras and film cameras. I couldn't afford the film stock because it was expensive. But I started working with video cameras and I listened to music and I ended up doing the music videos when I was there, mm-hmm. I just, which I just did. I made short films. I made a little... Um, I was using... You know, I was doing, I was learning my mise en scene. You know, I was learning everything I possibly could about everything to do with film. In a way, in a technical and mechanical approach. Absolutely, but also people were a big thing. You mm-hmm. know, it's like actors. How, what right. are they? How, what, how does that work? Uh, producers, who they would have, people who come in who wanted to produce. How does that work? Um, I, you know, and I was consuming film, going from practically knowing nothing about film. I began to just fall absolutely headlessly, head, headlessly, <laughs> absolutely headlessly. <laughs> I, I began to fall head over heels in love with cinema. And so it was your new drug. It was my, um, it was my, it was my substitute for for drug abuse. I didn't ever take drugs. I just watched movies. Oh, you and me both. And there we go. Yeah. I didn't even start drinking alcohol until I was way later in life, but I'm making up for it now. Um, <laughs> and I can tell you, it's funny, I, I gave a talk at the Vancouver Film Festival recently where I started to mention the films that changed me, 
And people seem to be interested in that. What uh, were they? Um, they were Nicholas Rogue's film, mm. the filmmakers and the films that changed me. And it changed me almost instantaneously. I, I, I recently became a father. I, when you have a child, it changes you in a way that you're completely aware of, and it happens instantly. I think film did a similar thing. Very different, but instantaneously in the same way. Um, and I don't know whether or not it was because... Um, I was already primed in some other ways from writing and from, you know, taking photographs, which I also knew how to do. But I just understood the form I thought. Mm -hmm. I didn't. <laughs> but right. I thought I did. So I, the film. That's enough to start. It's enough to start. Yeah. I, and I was young and I was arrogant. So, you know. <laughs> um, um, Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. Uh, Toby Hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, uh, Nicholas Rogue's performance and bad timing really mm -hmm. changed me. Um, um, Tony Scott's The Hunger changed me. These all have incredibly strong visual senses. They do. Which is something that is very much a part of what you do. I think, yes. I'm going to come to that because I think I'm trying, you know, I, I, it's funny. I had to give this talk and what I did was I kind of went back through from the you know, when I think I roughly first picked up a camera, which is around 89, I think, mm -hmm. to now. And it, there's these five-year chronological kind of events that happen throughout the time. Um, and But the most interesting to me is right at the beginning. Because I'm, I'm talking about, you know, there's loads of films that have influenced me and I've loved over the many, many years. But these are films I saw, like, I saw them all together, like two years or one year. So Polanski's Repulsion, mm. you know, and to talk a little bit about those films. I mean, like Repulsion, I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm directly inside this woman's head. I'm looking from outside of her eyes. During her deterioration. Yeah. I'm not just watching a story from the outside in. I'm inside of this already. Mm. So I didn't understand that entirely, but I knew formally that that was something to do with the form. Um, Ridley Scott's Alien, I believed it. It was in space with monsters. You never believe that stuff because mm -hmm. it always looks terrible. This I believed. I believed that there was something natural about it. The way it was held together, um, the way the shots cut together was very sharp, sharper than I was used to seeing. Uh, I don't know how to describe other than sharp. All of these things had an effect to me. David Lynch's Blue Velvet and before that Eraserhead. Mm -hmm. um, had this formal dream narrative, yet it's still kind of held together in a way and there was definitely something about how not just what it was about how the film was made you know it was about how the shot was seen with the sound all of these things that as a novice knowing nothing about film suddenly all of this stuff is rushing at me and it's fascinating to me and it's exciting to me and i realized that filmmakers can be as cool as rock musicians <laughs> and i realized I'm not going to be in a band. I'm going to try and make films. <laughs> Even better. Yeah. So, um, and then, you know, I, I, and I, I did. I learned by doing um, music videos became the thing I found I could do. And I, that became my film school. Uh, I never went to film school, so I didn't get the formal training. It's kind of interesting. The first time I started to, it's the first time I kind of worried about eye lines. Mm-hmm. You know, eye lines being, you know, which way you look and with, the, with relation to where the camera's positioned and the actors to make them basically look like they're looking at each other. Rather than looking at apart from. Yeah. yeah. So it's easy cuts, to make that mistake. When it cuts together. And I'd somehow internalized how to do that. Mm. But I didn't know what it was called. So someone, you know, I, was doing, I remember when I was doing Hard Candy, this is many, many years later, my first feature film. Someone said, oh, are you sure they brought the eye lines? And I'm like, eye lines? <laughs> Wait a minute. 
oh god i better learn about eye light and you'd already intuited but i intuitively knew yeah. all about it and i so i looked at the you know i got one of the i grabbed a textbook from you know i went to a rush to a bookshop nowhere in prep to shoot my first feature and i kind of went and you know opened the textbook and and a barnes and noble and looked and i was oh, okay it's Oh yeah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I understand what that. <laughs> okay, <is>. thank God. <laughs> I, know. I already knew that. <laughs> I kind of think I already knew that, but now I know what to call it. You know, <clears throat> right? Um, camera left, film left, frame left, and um, so yeah, so yeah, it was a process of enthusiastic doing, and yeah, absolutely, there was this kind of there's this kind of mechanical visual uh, side of me that is you know really really um, you know I'm a nerd. I, I want to find out how it all works. <laughs> Right. You know, but I, I but that goes beyond the machinery and into people too, and stories and, and everything. I kind of want to know how it all works. Well, one of the things I find fascinating about the world of music videos, as well as the mm -hmm. world of genre film, particularly yep. in the horror genre, is that they're as much about creating atmosphere mm -hmm. and stylization, yes, and and the idea of metaphor, mm -hmm. uh, visual metaphor, yeah. and things that you can't do in a straight drama or a comedy or a yeah. western. But but there is a surreality to it uh, that really makes an artist bloom which we talked about in the introduction a little bit right and so do you feel that connection between yeah i think the genre? i think you know when, when you're doing music videos and, and i haven't done one for a while now probably about five or six years maybe longer seven eight years and um but you know from the beginning you know what you've done you've given a piece of music if there's lyrics there's poetry Mm -hmm. Because lyrics, you know, the, the lyrical form is essentially poetic as opposed to, you know, as opposed to um, prose. And so you have a something which is, you know, has an abstraction already. And you're given the task of creating something. Usually there's not much. Usually, when I said certainly when I was beginning, the brief was usually color or black and white. The choice is yours. There was no brief. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. There was no brief. Um, to me, I was really in the two things I was interested in was if one was making a portrait of that artist, of, of that musician at that time. Um, and to some extent, I was happy with just that because right. I was fascinated in portraiture and people. You know, so there's a way to kind of tease something out of a particular personality and, and make that, you know, cinematic in some way. That was kind of enough for me. But I was also really interested in, in, in these kind of abstract metaphorical stories that were not necessarily, they didn't have a three-act structure right. in a narrative way. Um, but they could have symbolism. They could have meaning. Uh, and the other thing about these little structural stories was they had to be watched over and over again because at that time at the very beginning these things were on high rotation on on the music channels that which, which mm -hmm. don't really exist anymore but you know mtv was showing music videos so this thing you if you did a song that turned out to be a hit song it may be shown three times an hour right, you know, right. all day long so you, it, so the three you know the people who made the kind of short story straight narrative music videos didn't really fare well because they you couldn't once you knew what the ending was and you you kind of if the filmmaking wasn't visceral enough to drag you through it again and again and again you couldn't watch it again and again and again so you know the formal side of it there's also this thing as well and i kind of think at this point many 20 odd years later i think it, there's a certain level of formal tightness and sharpness it made me when I when we made a music video and we cut it and we finished it and the track was really good as well. It would make me feel alive. I mean, mm -hmm. it would make give me a high watching it. I'd be excited, you know, in a way that you are making, you know, with a really amazing film. It it, it uh, you felt it in your body, and 
I don't know what that is, except that it made me feel alive as a filmmaker, and it made me want to keep doing it in and itself. Well, fulfilling as, a creative quest has is one of the most fulfilling yeah. feelings I can imagine. Yeah, but as opposed to just being a means to an end, you know, like you know, right. a lot of people when they oh, you know, I really wanted to do <clears throat> make movies, so I did music videos to learn, and then I, I, you know, I became fascinated in the music video form. You know, I became really aware of other film directors who were my peers at the time uh, and what they were doing. You know, people like Wiz, who was this amazing British, who made these rock operas. And they were like mm. these three-minute rock operas, but they were amazing. You'd watch them over and over again. And, you know, they had as much symbolism as Pasolini, you know. <laughs> but they were for a rock musician, you know. And so... um So I, it was more than just learning how to, to go to a place... Uh, it was really a fascination with that form. You know, and commercials came along. I, the thing about commercials, for me and commercials, which came quite quickly after that, was that was more of a means to an end. Because the form, once I'd got done a few, did, didn't interest me very much. Right. And you were selling a product. And you're selling a product. And even the coolest product in the world is still a product. It, it, it's, it, I also didn't really break heavily into that industry i did some really big well-paying jobs mm-hmm. and and actually that's how i ended up meeting with uh jake scott and then ridley scott and they they were instrumental in bringing me from england to america to live here um through you know and made money for mm-hmm. them by doing commercials sure um and, and i loved doing them when i did them but it just in terms of the form it was it became very quick to understand what it was you were doing whereas music videos seem to have this infinite possibility in its form. You know? Well, having had the opportunity to watch you work a little bit, it's fascinating to see how you do approach every aspect of filmmaking. There, are, I came at it uh, from a writer's standpoint right. yep. and first started working with Steven Spielberg, who yep. awakened me to what there is in the visual vocabulary and yeah. the tools to create that. Mm-hmm. And watching how philosophically you approach it with the different actors yes and technically you approach it but i still feel there's some sheffield there there's yeah? an industrial an industrial quality <laughs> to to your visuals right and i see i don't see people as direct influences on you like david lynch and the people you were yeah. talking about yeah. Yeah. but the allowing the original vision of your own mm. to take over and and speak your personality mm. through the visuals, and mm. I, I find that fascinating. Mm. So I, I'd love to find to to find out how you made that transition from three and four minute shorts, thirty second sure, commercials, absolutely. into yeah. your first feature. How yes. did that come about? How did that come about? My first feature film um, was well. There's a longer story to be told, and I think we could do a little bit of it, which it relates to the th- project that you and I just collaborated on. In fact, um, so. I was writing, always writing. I was publishing short stories in, usually in youth culture, subculture magazines, some in America, some in England. Uh, so you were doing fiction as well I was as doing journalism. Little, bits of fiction, yeah. yeah. It's the yeah. BMX fiction to begin with, skateboarding mm-hmm. fiction, and it crossed over. And I was also doing band, you know, I, like I'd just been, I'd been, I'd been interviewing musicians because I mm-hmm. love music. Yeah, I and interviewed Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, yeah, and all those. To me, it was like Steve yeah. Albini and the kind of more industrial grunge, you know, yeah, yeah, sure. things. But those were the people that, uh, that I was interested in, I kind of sought out and, and interviewed. So... There was always this narrative drive to me, um, and I was always writing stories. And, and of course, you know, going to film, not going to film school, but going to art college, I'm, sl- I'm making these short films, which I have to be written. And I never, you know, very rarely did I adapt anything. I, I, I would use generally write this stuff. I mean, I, it's funny that I haven't written, um, anything, uh, for, a, you know, for the long, you know, for my entire career, really, because, what I'd say is that I've been really super lucky 
to just work with way better writers than me. <laughs> <laughs> I've been lucky that I've, you know, I've always, I, you know, I've, I've had these films that I've wanted to make. And maybe, and we maybe can talk about this too, maybe now that film and television are merging a little bit uh, formally, there's a possibility that I could end up writing more uh, things that I direct. But I, you know, essentially, you know, when you do music videos, you have to write it all yourself. So I, the form of writing I enjoy and I do, I just, you know, I've just been in the situation where I've always managed to get better scripts than the <laughs> ones that I've written. So I've done them. Um, but so one of the projects, um, I'll tell you the, trying to do the brief version of this, several music video, several years into my music video career in England, um, I came across a short story called Traumatic Descent, and it was written by Lawrence C. Connolly. Mm. Um, this is a familiar title. That's a familiar title. <laughs> um, and it's actually been changed. He actually eventually changed the title uh, in, in the compilation of short stories that he wrote that came out called This Way to Egress. And This Way to Egress is the, is the film that is the part of Nightmare Cinema that you and I worked on together. Um, so this is way back in like 2000, you know, the year 2000, 2001-ish. Uh, and I was working... Um, you know, doing music videos, but trying to make um, films. A friend, a really good friend of mine, a guy called Charlie Cantor, uh, had managed to write and direct a, a vampire movie, and it was a really tiny, low budget. But and he was being approached by producers to make another horror movie, and he didn't really want to, but he kind of liked the producers. So we all met, and he said, "Well, what if I write it and David directs it?" And we're like, "Okay, all right." And and they had a um, novel that they'd optioned. It was a, it was a very popular British horror writer. And we, we were, we were, you know, we were like, okay, maybe we'll do this. And so, uh, and I was, but I was still doing music videos. I was going to America. So I, I was going to get on a plane to Los Angeles. And I said, look, I'll read this novel on the plane. And you better read it to my friend, Charlie, who was going to write it. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. These producers want to option it. And, and this was exciting to us because we'd, you know, never been involved in, in, in film in any way. Sure. You know, we'd just been done with the things we'd done, except for my friend who'd made his own independent film, which was done entirely on grit and council money, you mm. know. Um, and so we started reading this novel. It was a terrible novel. And I, I tried to read it over and over again. And by the end of the flight, you know, to, to Los Angeles, I called my friend when I got there. I said, this is terrible. We can't do this. And he said, yeah, it's awful, isn't it? I tried to read it. It was terrible. I'm like, oh, God, what are we going to do? Why don't we just give him another short story that we will, another story that we want, you know? I said, okay. So we did. And I t pitched them traumatic descent which they liked and so uh -huh. we developed um with these producers this film a feature-length version of traumatic descent later became this way to egress um my friend passed away he, he had a horrifyingly unfortunate esophagus cancer it just came from nowhere and took oh, his geez. life in his mid-30s so i kind of had this whole just emotionally it was also connected then so i kind of took this screenplay and i put it on the shelf hmm. couldn't couldn't look at it Mm. Um, part of that whole journey was also getting me to live in America. Part now, I was trying to get that film made beyond the script. Uh, we had a script. We were trying to get the finance in place then to make it. And in England, what I quickly found was, unless you've already made a film, unless you come out of a film school with a lot of connections, people will meet you and talk about making a film, but nobody really wants to make the film. Mm -hmm. So I realized if I was going to make this film... I was going to have to go to America, going to go to Los Angeles. And, you know, my the talk, vague talks were there with various companies who might take me mm. to America um, to do videos and commercials. And I realized I got to have to do this because, you know, my friend was, was ill. 
there was a time on that that was, you know, immutable. And so it really drove me to come and live in America. So 2002, my friend passed away. I shelved this way to egress. I put it away. Um, to some extent, probably always will, that version of it. Um, and But came to America, restarted my life. Uh, by 2004, I'd, be, I'd read the script for Hard Candy. And I just, it just drove, I just, burn through the script. I read mm. it quick. I, I read slowly. I'm a very slow reader. And I just read all the way through this thing. And it excited me on the level of... There was just a moral center to it, but none of it was mapped out. It was, it was this film, to me, about two monsters. Mm. But it was also a noir. To me, it was a classic Hollywood film noir. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was small, and it was new, and it was exciting. It was stripped down. And, and the perfect first feature. And yeah, and yeah, and, if, and a thing that I felt I could do. Mm-hmm. This was the thing I felt I could do it well. So You're I felt, ready. So I felt, yeah, I, 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 you know, I knew I had my chops. May, you know, I may not have been the best at whatever you know else I learned over the course of my career, but at that point, I could do a two-person thriller. I understood how thrillers worked. I felt I felt like I had a language that actually was as psychological as anything else, which I developed. Largely through music videos and experimentation, sure. but you know, I felt like, you know, uh, I, I just felt like I could do it, and so I went and I pitched and I got the job, um, and and we made the film. We made the film for nine hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And and you know, the 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 the, the transition from filmmaking was kind of the, the, there's just no. There's no kind of break. I just kind of went from one thing to the next. So thing. it felt like a natural transition. Yeah, I mean, it felt like a natural tra- transition with the sort of Damocles of knowing <laughs> that it's the first feature film you've ever done, and mm-hmm. that you know everything was hanging over you for sure. But I managed to. I, what I managed to do is, uh, I remember meeting a number of my friends and saying, "I think this is a poly- This may be the most control I'm ever going to get mm. in a feature film." So you must come and help me. And I work with your Willems, the DOP that, you know, I've worked right. with ever since. But also I work with through music videos and commercials, Art Jones, my editor, who again, through videos and commercials, was my editor. Um, uh, Barry Wassman, who again has passed away, but, but quite recently passed away. Um, Barry was 60. At the time we started shooting out candy, amazing mm-hmm. first AD. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I needed my editor, my DOP. And my first AD, it couldn't be other people. So, and I met a wonderful producer in, in Hans Ritter, who was uh, became my line producer on that. Really, my hands on, and David Higgins, who was the producer who you know who who developed the script. You right. know, just let me do it. So you had the team. I had the team, and I and we found Ellen Page. And I, I, I'm telling you, when you find Ellen Page, <laughs> I, I, no, no, honestly, when I. I a videotape of Ellen reading a scene blew our minds. It was, it was, there were two scenes she read and it was just there. It was all there on a piece of, you know, you know, just a, you know, just a usual casting camera on a tripod. And it's a mind blowing performance. It is. It is. And and, and, And a career making one. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. But, um, I mean, I was lucky to find her. It was funny. We found her very quickly and then we had this tape so it was easy to get, you know, 
Uh, it's funny. I, I met with. I'm not going to start saying the names of actors who didn't end up being in it because yeah. it's always a funny ga- a game that you don't want to play. Right. But you know, a couple of really like one particularly very well known actor was like, "Oh my god, I want to be in this." And my finances are like, "Who's that guy? He's never going to be." Here. And he became <laughs> a massive star. But anyway, we got Patrick Wilson, who again became, you know, again is amazing and right. astonishing and, and a friend to this day. And um, I felt could match her, and right. that was hard finding someone could match Ellen. Well, both of them had to have so much power. And yeah. I mean, this is a two-hander. This is a Absolutely. movie with just two people in it, basically. Yeah. And oh. it's powerful in every frame. And it's in, 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 in so much that the power is, a re, is often a reverse amount of power. And it took such great chops. And to give all the credit in the world, I gave them so many notes. And they did all of them in ways that were amazing. We couldn't really rehearse that much. But we did rehearse which wasn't right to rehearse that material. A lot of it had to be spontaneous. Spontaneous. 18 days was our schedule. That was very fast. It was crazy fast. Crazy fast. Um, And we just prepared and prepared and prepared and prepared. I prepared and prepared and prepared and prepared. And they just came in and they trusted me. And Mm. I'm so glad they did. They it was We got on really well almost immediately as we came into the first day. And we just kept going until we got to our 18th day. 18 and a half days. We did like a half day, like driving day. Mm. We shot the roof of the arc light for that opening sequence. Uh-huh. A little, kind of, little kind of driving right. sequence. I was given freedom. I, I got to make the film I wanted to make. And that was an amazing thing. Which leads us to the studio experience that followed. Right. Yes. <laughs> and, uh... Well, you know, just, just, just to, you know, to jump in time, um, but just go back. Once it was, the film was cut, I took the film out of America into London mm-hmm. to work with my own editor ah. in London, which not to take it away from anyone particularly because it was an independently financed film. Sure. Ever, David Higgins, an amazing producer who totally was on board. Everybody was on board. Um, but we were doing a lot of very experimental things with form. Mm-hmm. And I think some of the money financiers, you know, the people who were a little nervous at one point when they saw like the first, like the graded first version of it. I remember mm-hmm. at one point them saying, oh God, you know, you may have to just make this more like traditional if we don't sell at Sundance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did sell at Sundance, and so that wasn't an issue. But yeah, then I went on to do a studio movie, and, and very quickly afterwards as well. Yeah, uh, it was one after another. So yeah. tell me about the difference in the approach there. Here's something based on a popular graphic novel. Yeah. And uh, so were there different expectations? Funnily enough, I think, I mean, I had a pr- now in retrospect... I had a really good experience yeah. doing it. I was protected by Sam Raimi, mm-hmm. who obviously was a massive fan, and Rob Tappet, his producer. Right. Great like, guys. Who, 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 you know, and they knew, you know, they knew their shit. I mean, right. they, they were incredibly way more seasoned than I. Um, but they liked my film, and they, and I, you know, I had a thousand ideas that I wanted to do. And I was just, I just bowled forward. And I, I was also, you know, I kind of, you know, I was tough with it, too. I fought people. I fought the studio. I fought people to get the things I wanted to get, you know. Um, and I didn't fight them very well because, I, you know, that's a whole... Uh, that kind of political fighting is something I'm not not that great at, although I don't need to do that much these days. But in the development process, did you find it? A little it bit, to... but not much, no. Yeah. I mean, and again, Sam and, and, and Rob, you see, you know, Rob is this, you know, you, you know Rob Tapper. He's yeah, the gruffest yeah. guy. <laughs> He's gruff. Yeah. And, and I say the word gruff with love. 
And he know, knows how to make a horror movie, right? Absolutely. He knows how to do a jump scare. He knows how to do it. And he'd be like, David, this is what you do. This is how you do it. <laughs> and he'd just tell me the nuts and bolts way of doing it, right? And I'm like, we're trying to make this more psychological approach mm-hmm. with this darker undertone, but, you know, so you feel it in your whole body. Oh, this is how you do it. You do this, you do this. <laughs> you know, we need, we need a scene with a monster that never dies. We need this scene. We need that. And I learned a, a ton, tons and tons and tons you know, uh, from those producers, the studio uh, were a little, a little more nervous coming in through the door. There, they said, "Oh, you know, we're not going to talk about the rating. We'll just figure it out." And I was yeah, like, "Oh, right. no, 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 yeah. no, 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 no." And, and that was the one of the that was the one of the big fights that had because I just said, "Look, we have to say that it's R-rated, otherwise, how are we going to make the film?" You yeah, know, they're oh, going to fight for a PG thirteen, which they are, yeah. and and it was just it was something that you know they were prepared to throw the film at that point, you know, and I decided that it would probably be better if I did the same thing. So, but it, in the end, they agreed, you right. know. But it was like you don't want to put someone's nose out of joint right at the beginning of your relationship with them. But I kind of did. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm like, no, it's going to be our rating, or I'm not doing it. And they were like, you know, well. Um, That's a big decision that needs to be made up front. It's like uh, getting married and deciding one of you wants a kid and the other doesn't. Right. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the other thing was um, our good friend Eli Roth had just put out Hostel, Mm -hmm. you know, which had done a major scare on on the whole film industry as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so – Every third note was, oh, we don't want it to be like Hostel. We got to, can't be like Hostel. Like, Nothing's like Hostel. God's sakes. Have you even seen Hostel? It's quite a good, quite a good movie. Yes. I mean, you know, should, we should be, sure, we should be so lucky to some degree. But, um, you know, so there was, I remember showing a vampire test to someone from the studio, from a, from an executive from the studio and who just was like, are you fucking crazy? This is a studio movie. <laughs> he had blood all over his mouth and he was, ah! Scream, screeching and screaming. I, I mean, going into it, you know, I met with uh, Neil, uh, with Steve Niles, who I loved. Yeah, great guy. Who'd written a draft, which was more of a Nosferatu, smaller film that I, mm-hmm. I really liked. You know, we tried to keep as many of those elements as possible. They tried to write it with the other writers, too much more mainstream action movie writers. And Stuart Beatty and a couple other people had taken a crack at it. And I wasn't interested in those scripts. We had to keep Stuart's name because of. Uh, on the script, but we kind of threw all of his stuff away. And I brought in Brian Nelson, who wrote Hard Candy with me, mm. to essentially say, look, let's look at Steve's quite short book and let's expand character out from it, but let's keep Steve's book as the structure of the thing. Let's not go off and make superhero vampires and vampire penguins and vampire bears and shit, which had all come in other drafts that I'd read that had been developed mm, separately. And so we did something much more much smaller in some respects uh, and closer to Steve's book. Um, we merged some of the characters together. We merged uh, Marlo. And, well, Marlo was Marlo, but he was kind of also Vincente, mm-hmm. which is also yeah. from the book. Well, the graphic novel was yeah. kind of a breakthrough graphic novel. Yeah. It wasn't like anything else at its time, and and really, it was much more punk rock. Yeah, you know, yeah. it was it was very it was a punk rock graphic novel. And Niles is a pretty punk major rock guy. punk rock. Yeah, guy. yeah absolutely, yeah. It, it totally was a punk rock graphic novel. And, and we tried to keep as much of that punk rock as we could uh, going into it. You know, the fact that they, you know. <laughs> the vampires all dressed like they were in bands, you know, like <laughs> yeah, black yeah. suits and t-shirts, <laughs> you know. The, um, but we, you know, I also was trying to like make something physiological. I knew that really, when you extend that out to two hours, you kind of have a damn prank story. You know, mm-hmm. you have like a hide and 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 survive story. Right. And 
I also tried to make the vampires as convincing as vampires in a physiological way. Make them stronger, but not supernatural. I tried to avoid all things supernatural in them. You know? So it was kind of near-darkish in that yeah. sense. Yeah, it, it was. was yeah. They're grounded. They were yeah. as grounded as they could. They were faster, they were stronger, but they were essentially people who ate you. you <laughs> yeah, know? and the concept of being in the longest nights on yeah. Earth in this town is is a brilliant one, yeah. being no. trapped in a vampire world. And it was fun it was really fun and we you know one of the things rob i thank rob tappet for is he took me to new zealand where i had i think more control than i would have done mm-hmm. because the studio didn't want to come all the way down to new zealand um and they you know they sent various agents along the way to to, to you know to make sure that i wasn't being insane uh, but we were insane anyway <laughs> you know <laughs> you started insane and go up yeah. yeah yeah and i took as many you know i took my editor i took my i took as many people as i could with me and i had the amazing fortune of working with wetter workshops on oh yeah on my practical effects peter jackson's yeah, company absolutely i decided to do almost everything practical except for some really specific digital things that no one had really ever done before mm-hmm. which was and I, I learned very quickly with the studio just not to tell them <laughs> just <laughs> That's to, the if it's never been done before don't tell them that you know, right. don't be excited about it. I'll tell them that because they'll just, they would just panic at that point. You know, uh, first time filmmaker as far as they're concerned because you're, you're doing something that's never been done before. Let's not do that. Right. So yes. we just, if they're like, not familiar with it. They're very, so there were a lot of things yeah. that were just like, they were like, oh, we don't want you to do that. But we managed to kind of make, get them through, I think, mostly. Well, you're uh, a strong director. You had strong producers on your yeah, side. And, and that's a great team. Now, your next studio movie was something quite different. Yeah. Here, you were doing the third chapter in an outrageously successful yes. franchise yep. of Twilight. Mm. So tell me what the difference between... Did you have somebody running running interference for you? No. Or were you, you, were, <laughs> you were on your own? It's funny because, I, you know, I... I it, the possibility of it came up very. It all happened really fast. It was like, oh, it was kind of started and was over to some extent in the flash. It, it, the production schedule was very, very, very uh, constrained. Um, but the suggestion came up, and I was like, well, I don't know. And they said, Well, would you read the books? And I couldn't. I, I just tried started reading them. I didn't. You know, it wasn't <laughs> my cup of tea. But I. St- but but they just sent me the third one. Mm-hmm. After a while, I, I tried to read the first and the second one, and they, I was just kind of scratching my head and. Just kind of trying to figure out whether whether there was anything about it that interests me, and well, you're now the vampire guy. I'm the vampire guy. Well, what happened? I, I, there was a point. I, I remember calling my agent, and my manager, saying, "Well, I wouldn't hire me." <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the third book was really good. I got the third book and I started reading it, and suddenly I just clicked. You just clicked, and I started reading it. And I had to go. I, I did eventually go back and read the other two. But the third is, you know, I, and people who were familiar with the franchise were like, yeah, no, the third one's the best one. Oh. So I can, so I went to, you know, various meetings. I had a lot of ideas. Um, the second one hadn't come out yet, by the way. Mm-hmm. The second one was being, had, was being shot or was you know, about, was prepping when I was taking meetings and mm-hmm. was going to be shot. And Chris Weiss was direct, was in Vancouver directing that while I was taking meetings. And I literally had the kind of conversation like, with the studio and I said, I, I don't know. I wouldn't hire me. You know, why me? And they said, well, you know, you've done a really good vampire movie <laughs> and you've done a movie starring 15-year-old girls. So... Well, it makes sense to me. Makes, and I was like, yeah, all right. That makes sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and before I knew it, it was in. And... Um, Neither of those movies were intended for 15-year-old no, girls, no, mind you, but... No, you know. no, no, neither of them were. Um... But they, you know, they trusted me with the franchise, and I. Uh, and here's the thing, also, this it's not that big at this point. Mm-hmm. The second one hasn't come out yet, um, 
Catherine Hardwick's movies out, and it's a yeah, it's a fun punk rock little movie. Right. That one. It's not a massive, vast studio movie. It's no. a punk rock little movie set in Poland. But a huge success. A massive success. Yes. You know, with a great title scene at the end. It's like a rock and roll music video. And uh, and then Chris Weiss's one, which hadn't been made yet, um, became the one that kind of said massive franchise. That one, when I remember being invited to the premiere of that one while I was prepping the mm-hmm. third one and going, oh my God, because it was huge. Mm. It was massive. It was enormous. And suddenly everything changed at that point. I was still kind of under the proviso that it's kind of around the same size, if not maybe a little smaller than 30 Days of Night, mm-hmm. the film I was going to make. And then I saw this other, you know, I saw this thing with like, oh God, well, you know, the, the, the premiere was like one of the biggest staple center and oh just God. millions of people. No pressure, huh? And, and yeah, so you had to go and do that. But, um, but, you know, it was the third movie, so there was a certain amount um because it's the third movie in a franchise there's a release date and there mm-hmm. it is so the you know the card is a little bit before the horse you've got to hit that release date no matter what happens there's a bunch of stuff that you just inherit mm-hmm. you know there's things there's visual effects stuff and all kinds of stuff that i wanted to change and i tried to change and some of them i was really successful in doing some of them i wasn't you know right. uh, and well, there ground this, rules had this, been laid. Yeah, right? there were these ground rules that had been laid, and there were just things you know, like the sparkly thing was a thing that was that was a done deal, right? They were doing it the same way they did it in the first movie, the same way they did it in the second movie. I had this whole concept and these tests for how to make it look more realistic looking. Nope, not interested. Um, I managed to get the get the wolves a little more interesting looking, a little more well, more realistic looking. Mm-hmm. Um, I changed a little bit of that stuff, and I changed a lot of other things. I, I, I also kind of changed a lot of the language of the film because it didn't seem to me that there was any really strict language that had been set up in the first two. Cinematic language. Yeah, cinematic language that needed to be, you know, that needed to kind of be continuing canon in any way. That that didn't seem to be, not that there weren't cinematic films, but just there wasn't a language that one person had moved to the next to the next. So I was given a free rain of that stuff the stylistic things the lighting and the lens choices and and yeah the approaches. i was able to do yeah. that mm-hmm. stuff i was able to i had a pretty much a free range doing that stuff i i i inherited javier girasarobi who was a wonderful cinematographer who shot the others and a number mm, of stuff wonderful spaniard mm-hmm. spoke very little english and i spoke very little spanish so we got a great um <laughs> And now, what about involvement by the studio during the process of development and shooting, and then ultimately the post-production? Um, you know, it's it was it was a tougher one, I think, in some respects, because it wasn't an R-rated movie, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of moving parts. And, and you knew that things. going in, it was yeah, I did. You know, I mean, listen, there was nothing in there where I felt like, oh my god, I was I I, I was completely and utterly devastated when something like there were a lot of things i'm like yep expected that to happen let's figure Mm -hmm. out how to deal with it right you know um but um my writer melissa rosenberg was amazing and stuff and tough oh good you know uh melissa had had adapted i think the other two and and she was great um and so i got on really well with her um and 
I managed to get Howard Shaw to oh, score yes. it. Who did all of Cronenberg's movies. Yeah. Yes. So that was wonderful. Uh, he started out uh, heading the band on Saturday Night Live way right. back when, mm. and uh, it was his ha- Howard Shore and his all-nurse orchestra. <laughs> it was oh, Howard was lovely. And, He's and an we, amazing composer. And we, you know, we did it with a full orchestra in, nice. uh, in, in, in um, Abbey Road Studios. Oh, well. wow. Yeah, so well, there's a, history So there was you. plenty of, like, you know, kind of bucket list. There were, I mean, I, at a certain point, I saw it as a bunch of bucket list stuff to do. Ah. You know, I tried to kind of... You know, I make the very best film I could, but I really wanted to kind of experience, you know, uh, a lot of stuff. I, I you know, I, I, I feel the only, the only things that, you know, lasting things that I was like, oh, I wish that hadn't happened or whatever. One of the things was Phil Tippett, who was an astonishing Stop visual effects, guy. who began, you know, started go motion for Star Wars. Mm-hmm. And, um, he and I just didn't get on and I mm. really wanted to get on with him, but he, and I, he, you know, his, the, his approach was completely diametrically opposed to mine. And so wow. I really, you know, I, I really liked Phil and I had so much respect for Phil, mm-hmm. but we just were chalk and cheese. We didn't, you know, it's not that we were, we didn't actually not, not get on as people, but we just, our approaches were very different. So we ended up always having to kind of argue over process. Mm. Um, well, you strike me as very much a renegade filmmaker mm-hmm. in that you you have a vision, you mm-hmm. set out to fulfill it, and you're going to. Um, That's the problem, right? Because yeah. and, and, I know that I am. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, and, and at a certain point, you've got to be a bulldozer. And know. so I don't see... Mm-hmm. You as the guy doing a third film in a franchise yeah, uh, that's no. intended for teenage girls. Yeah, it's odd. So, Neither do I now. But it seems like you accepted that assignment going in as if it were your Mission Impossible yeah. and did this amazing yeah. job for this amazingly successful movie. Did it change much during the process of uh, once it was being screened? and uh, were there, Not really, no. Yeah. Um, there was an unfortunate thing that, I, well, one of the things I think was unfortunate was... Um, the studio wanted to have another pass at the edit because of their own internal notes. Uh, and it never, because we got, so what we did was, you know, we film tested it. Mm-hmm. And so a certain, you know, the director's cut and there's various producer cuts. Um, director's cut is always the first thing, you know, that's how of it course. is. You get 10 weeks or whatever it is, the union minimum. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you put it forward and then the and then everybody starts talking and you start recutting and recutting. And so we but what we you know, because of the second movie and because of the massive, enormous, faithful fan base for the books, they had these entire auditoriums that they could fill with fans who God. promised not to tell a word to anyone mm-hmm. and who would be honest and give you feedback. And it actually wasn't a bad thing. Nice. You know, it, what, because they loved it, the material. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a bunch of people who knew nothing about anything who were just going like, I didn't like it. They, they maybe actually, knew the new universe better than you did. Indeed. In yeah, absolutely. And so we would, you know, we, we started testing you know, with full, you know, Nielsen test reports. Right, right. And, you know, the early cuts tested better. Hmm. You know? But the studio wanted it to be smoothened out. And there were a lot of filmmaking choices a lot, but there were some filmmaking choices I think that were sharper and more experimental maybe, and mm-hmm. certainly the way it was cut. Right. Um, that but you make a the, deal with the devil at a certain point. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And so that was, I mean, you know, in terms of the downsides, there weren't that many, I guess. Right. You know, um, there were just a bunch of stuff that was 
you know, there were production problems, but there always are. And I wouldn't necessarily point at a studio, the studio movie and say it was a studio movie problem. It was just production. Right. Production just issues, you know. what comes up. What comes up. Um, and it was a very, and, and, and in the scheme of it, and people forget about this, it was a really fast, really fast, you know, very, very, very short prep. The whole process. Very short post. Mm-hmm. Uh, we shot 30 something days, 35 days, which is not a lot for a stu- for a right. blockbuster studio movie. That's <laughs> for sure. For num- <laughs> with a three in the title. Yeah. 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 So, well, um, so, you know, I, I got off okay. Well, you made a move into television, but it was yeah. amazing television. You'd done Breaking Bad and the occasional mm. um, uh, episodic. Yeah. But Hannibal to this day, I think, is the best broadcast TV series ever. Oh uh, and you. you did the pilot. Yep. You did uh, multiple episodes. Yep. But that's a TV series with a cinematic vision. Yep. And tell me about how that process worked, because usually there's not a whole lot of room for an artist's vision. Yeah. Uh, um, I say thank God for Brian Fuller, who... Who's been on the show and is just such a great guy. Yeah. And uh, a wonderful and, and for Hannibal, because, you know, you hear Hannibal... And you go, how's that, how's that going to work? It's just, yeah. You know, you don't have high expectations. No, nobody has any expectations that that's going to work. Um, um, but then I was sent the script and I read the script and the script was astonishing. We didn't, I think there were like two scenes, uh, two very short scenes that we ended up not using from the, uh, the rest of it was, you know, an unchanged pilot script that I got. The, you know, the first draft that I read was the draft we shot. Mm. Uh, a white script. <laughs> yeah. Look at that. It was mad. We didn't have, we didn't go through all the colors of the rainbow as we went through it. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it, so it was there. It was all there on the page. I met with Brian and immediately understood that he and I had the same fascination in the subconscious mm-hmm. level of storytelling. Now, film, my own film language was something I felt I could bring. Uh, he just had, he was just interested in the psychological. Right. His imagery was you know, as much of what's happening inside Will Graham's head as what's physically happening in the procedural sense. And that was just great. That was fantastic for me. Well, it's a very surreal kind of, uh, or hyper-real maybe, artful vision. Yeah, it's vision. funny. I never yeah. thought of it as, people. it's funny, people go back and say, oh, surrealism. Um, but I never really, I just kind of, I was, like, to me, it kind of, you know, reminded me of, you know, repulsion and things like that, where you're inside, I'm looking from inside of my someone else's head yes. and that is as valid a place to stand and look from when you're composing your film frame as anywhere else although it's an operatic vision you know yeah. it's it's this colorful explosive kind of but it's still meditative yeah. and moody and yeah. grim and but there's always a sense of movement going on and i feel like i'm going deeper into someone's mind yeah. and thoughts and visions yeah there was a lot of you know i, I think operatically speaking it got more operatic as well mm-hmm. as it went on. And I think to some extent, I my tendency was to ground more and Brian's tendency was to be more operatic. Mm-hmm. So we kind of complemented each other. It's that a way. great combination. Yeah. So you come in and say, oh, this thing. And I would say, um, you know, just just because we're doing sound and not, I, I just made my arms really big then. <laughs> and I would go in and say, you know, let's just, just take that and compress it down. And and, 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 and I'm now compressing my hands into something smaller. Um, but I think what happened is um, as I got to new Brian's vision, as we continued into two and three seasons, we earned 
the room to be as big and operatic as we wanted to. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not the first episode, maybe not even the first season, but by the season finale of the second season, which is, I think, one of my favorite things I've ever directed, mm-hmm. we were able to fill that kitchen with blood happily and get away with it with no problems at it's all. It's astounding. Do you think you got away with a lot of it because it was independently produced? Yes, absolutely yeah. we did. Yeah. If it had been a network production, yeah. there would oh, have been boy. no question. It would have looked like every other TV show. I don't know whether it would have looked specifically like it because... Maybe the, acted like it. Maybe would have been <clears throat> cut like it, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, thankfully, Chaos Theory leads us to be where we are, not where we could be. Hmm. You know, so I don't have to worry about those things. Um, you know, at the beginning, NBC were pretty good with us. Um, we had quite a small budget and we were independently produced. So they didn't really have much of a say. They basically just licensed it. Yeah, uh, to mm-hmm. some extent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they weren't entirely behind Maz Mickelson at the beginning. And I mean, Brian and I really fought that because obviously Maz Mickelson, you know, and, and everything that happened ever since. So, um, but, you know, they were okay, though. They weren't, you know, I remember having to talk a lot of people. I remember doing a lot of conference calls when we'd finished the first episode about, you know, how the color changed and how Will's vision worked. And I had to really break it down and... You know, I had to really nuts and bolts talk it through how, you know, what that really meant, you know, in ways that I didn't not usually have to do and don't really like to do mm. because you were meant to let the audience decide those things. Right. But I had to explain it away a lot. Um, but only once. And then after that, they were like, right. You know. <laughs> and you, know, you were off and running. Yeah. And we, and, you know, I did the first episode of the first season. I did the third episode. And the idea was if I did the first, like the third and the finale, I could keep an eye on it. And I also executive produced it. And often executive producers, this is the name on, I really, you know, I color timed every episode. I sound mixed every episode. I looked at every cut. I gave feedback. I was really involved. Um, not so much the third season, but the first two seasons, I did that all the way through to the end. Actually, the third season, I sound mixed every episode still as well. So, um, and there's a reason for that. Um, I got Brian Reitzel, who was a really good friend who did 30 Days of Night with me, to do the, to, to score the first episode mm-hmm. for me. And it was a real get because Brian, you know, is a movie guy and he's, you know, right. just, and we didn't have that much money and, you know, it was, um, but he was into it and he, but he, his agreement, the agreement we had, he and I was that, um, if he wasn't, if he was too busy to make the sound mix that I would mix it mm-hmm. and that I, I promised that I would mix it. If he scored it, I would mix it because I was the only person he trusted to mix it. And we'd mixed a movie together with John Hedges, Oscar winning mixer in New Zealand. Sure. And, yeah. and so I said, okay, I'll, I'll, don't worry. No matter what happens, if you're not able to go to the mix, I'll go to the mix. And I mixed every fucking episode. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he was always too busy. You know, yeah. um, he comes sometimes. But, well, and you know. the atmosphere and the, the web that's woven by the sound, uh, yeah. the surround sound yeah. mix is It was good. You know, we were able to basically st- pick up from where we left off on 30 Days of Night, in fact, and, and then just go even further. Well, your collaboration with Brian Fuller mm-hmm. continued through American Gods, yep. this time for stars where yep. there are no commercial issues right. that you, yeah. there's no uh, mm. advertising. It's interesting, like that. yeah, that thing. I, 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 it's interesting to me uh, in ways that may not be interesting to other people, that whole thing. Hannibal was this really tight six-act structure. Mm-hmm. Now, I was used to films, and I was used to you know, the three-act structure. Movies are six TV is a six acts, mm-hmm. you know, if uh, you're lucky, if you're yeah. lucky, six acts. <clears throat> and, and that's based on a network system where there are, because there's commercial breaks coming. Exactly. It was really good. I felt it was a really interesting 
a way to learn, like relearn filmmaking in some extent, because you had to pace your scenes differently. Yeah, you have to build and release in yeah. between act breaks. And it's very fast. Mm -hmm. It's very tight. Uh, Hannibal was always incredibly tight. You know, you kind of, you got there and then immediately then, then we were out. And then you got there and it was immediately you were out. And the filmmaking was very tight, had to be very tight because of that. Um, so that I thought was a really good thing. Mm -hmm. um, I never really thought about the idea that there were no, no, um, no, no censorship issues or advertising or anything like no that. No censorship issues, no. But we never really got beat with that stick on Hannibal Lecter. Anyway, I didn't mm. think. I mean, there was no overt sexuality. We couldn't no. show. No, there was no. no but the violence like, was certainly more extreme than you would find on network television. That's true. But it yeah. helped that it was on Saturday night and that mm. it was mm -hmm. independently produced. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was. Yeah, um, yeah. I, it's funny because there were so many other pressures. Honestly, mm -hmm. I yeah. never really thought about the, the 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 upside of being on a on a on a you know a premium cable. cable. Oh, yeah. You know, at all until it was done. Um, I just was like, well, let's just do it. And then we'll deal with it later, you know, because that's always usually the way to do it anyway. You can't really ask for permission because people say no, so you beg for forgiveness afterwards, <laughs> you know. Um, so you just go and do it. Well, we downsized you a little bit in uh, what we've just done this summer uh, that's yeah. coming out early oh, next year. Yeah. Uh, we did a little, uh, we did an anthology horror film yeah. called Nightmare Cinema, and it's yeah. something you and I had talked about doing for a while yeah. before it happened. Yeah, we, we, we tried to do, we tried to work yeah. together for a while, right? And yeah. we finally got it off yeah. the ground. Yeah. And so it's you and me and Joe Dante and Ryuhei Kitamura and Alejandro Bruges. Mm -hmm. And, um, your schedule was a little difficult yeah. so um, yeah. because I, you were so busy with American Gods. Mm -hmm. And so we, most of us shared the same crew yep. and the like, mm -hmm. but yours was kind of on an island yeah. because of the timing and all. Tell me a little bit about your experience putting that together. And, and now we come back to This Way to Egress. Yeah, This Way to Egress, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, so you called me, I remember, uh, year, couple of years, it was a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. And said, you know, you essentially said to me, you know, you've got a story, you can have freedom. You know, you essentially said, <laughs> do what you want, right? It's kind of that's the kind, of what, yeah. kind of what you said was, do what I want, shall be the whole of the law. Yeah. You know, and so I said, yeah, I do. I have this thing. And I don't think I told you the story behind no. it. I just said, I have this story. And I, I was kind of, it, it, I thought about it a few times, trying to find a way to tell this story because the story was quite important to me, the story itself, beyond my emotional attachment to the screenplay that we've done. I wanted to make this story. And um, so I said, well, what if I, I can't really, there's no way the feature length version of this is going to, you know, do, but what if I just take the essence of it? And if I take one of the scenes, essentially, well, two of the scenes from, from, from Larry's story and just condense them into like a 20 minute film, I thought I could do that. So I said, look, I have this idea. And I and then I sat and I wrote it, and it, it just poured out of me, you know, mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, it, when you enjoy writing, you do write something that you feel is good. You know, it took a couple of days, and I just, it just all poured right out of me. It was very easy. It was a little short, I think you mentioned mm -hmm. to me. You should, it was 14 pages, you right, should, I you, you were like, you should, you should add some more. And so I went to Larry, and I said, Larry, we need to, we need to expand this thing, and I don't want to do it without you. And so Larry kind of just wrote another scene for me, which was the whole scene with a phone call. Ah, uh, okay. So then, so I'd written it and then Larry had written the scene. So I said, well, let's just share the writing credits on it and we'll just make it. Um, and 
And I talked with Charlie's brother and, and just said we're going to do it. And I was like, okay, we got a chance to do this thing. And, you know, in a way, the story's been 17 years in the making or whatever. But so there was a lot of pressure for me at a certain point to go, oh, shit, we got to make this. <laughs> so what I think in terms of that whole... Yeah, I wanted to get it right, and I think I was maybe a little nervous that I'd have the time and all of those things. Then I ended up doing the Black Mirror right. you know, as well. And I remember writing you an email going, oh, God, I have to do this. It's Black Mirror. I have to do it. And can we? And then part of me was just like, oh, f you have to do this. You've got to just do this. You just have to. You can't, like, let this go. You have to. Um, then we had all kinds of issues behind the scenes with right. rights and stuff. Right. And I was like, oh, I just have to, I'm going to have to just... just Force through this and just shoot this. So we shot it in four days, right? We shot it. Shot it in four days. Four days. In black and white. In black and white, uh, in downtown LA, all on locations. Um, and um, I got, I just, you know, I just called my friends and asked them all to help, you know? Elizabeth Risa, who I'd worked with before, played Helen. Adam Godley, who I'd worked with before, played Dr. Salvador. Uh, Ezra Buzzington played the older monsters, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, we cast a wonderful couple of kids. And so, Yo Willems, a DOP who shot Hard Candy for me. And, you know, he, he'd always said to me, you know, if you've got a short film, I'll just do it. You know, I'll, I'll just do it. As long as I can, you know, ideally if it's in LA where I live. Yeah. You know, so how often do you get to shoot in LA too? I mean, I hadn't yeah. in a dozen years. Yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was, we managed to make it in LA and we kept it, kept the budget low. We, we didn't shoot long days either. We shot, you know, relatively, we had that one day where we went, went into overtime, you know, for a couple hours, you know, with the, with the spider and the other thing. Right. But, um, we essentially we, 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 we had, it was a lovely set. It was a really great bunch of people. Well, and I that's think, the thing about horror yeah. movies. Right, I mean, horror movie crews are really great. I We're mean, all just, in it together. Everybody, there's yeah. there's this whole thing of you know just everybody supports each other, and there's no kind of funniness, and everybody's just there because they love it, you know. Exactly. Um, and so, and um, I got it edited by Tony Kearns, who cut the Black Mirror with me, and it's somebody I worked with my entire career. We did mm. that via remote, and um, so yeah, we we. Um, I remember we, yeah, we rehearsed a little bit and then we shot it and um, it was intense. It, it was, was really intense. intense. It really surprised me how intense it was. Uh, I mean, it just, it really shook me up shooting that. I, I, and Elizabeth too, you know, I remember at a certain point, you know, I think maybe the last day, the middle of the last day, you know, Elizabeth and I would say, well, if there's, a, if there's a feature version of this, we would all die. Because <laughs> yes. the process of shooting, the emotional process. It's very intense, and it is about a, a disintegrating personality. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. and it's really kind of explicit and symbolic and, again, hyper-real, goes yeah. beyond realism, but yeah. not... And it's in kind of in its own language. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Yeah. I, I, I'm glad I made it now in some ways, because I think I am a better filmmaker to make it than mm -hmm. I would have been then. I think I was able to, you know, I was able to better serve the story at this point than I would have been a long time ago. Um, but, you know, it's essentially an a incredibly melancholic human story in that the actors really. I mean, it's really it's very just acting. Yes. It's really just acting. I mean, it's not. Yeah, I mean, this is very visual and all the rest of it. But there's not. Right. It doesn't. It doesn't need to be. You know, it's not vision first. It's it's really an emotional story. Well, what you've done by making it monochrome is stripping away all of uh, mm -hmm. all of the distraction. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're focused entirely yeah. on a, a melting mind. For, mm -hmm. for I think it also clues you in immediately as you go in. 
mm-hmm. that this is that there are you know this is gray. You know, there are shades. Of, it's just all going to be great. There's nothing going to be resolved here for you. Hmm. Nobody's going to say, bang, it's not suddenly the color's not all going to shift and, and we're going to have a resolution. You're just going to have to go through this thing and figure it out. Um, that was a big part of choosing to go monochrome in the end. I'd thought about shooting that in monochrome for a long time and it was very late that I chose the, to chose to do it. Well, it's a great opportunity to do it as part of an anthology mm-hmm. rather than trying to make a, a monochrome feature yes, these that's days. True. Yeah. Well, I just want to express to you my appreciation for being a part of Nightmare Cinema. Thank you. Uh, I mean, it was such a great experience to yeah. have you there yeah. and to have you here and talk about it. Yeah. And hopefully we'll get all five of the guys together to, to talk on a round table on the show. That'd be wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for you know getting me involved. It, you you kind of did something amazing for me because that film, as you now know, you may have known before, was a hugely emotional thing for me and 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 it was it was a, it was really important for me to f- to finish it well I, I think anybody who watches it is going to feel that all right so, thank you anyway thanks again and uh david slade the maestro david aldrin <laughs> slade thanks thanks mick thank See you so much thanks for listening to postmortem with mick garris download new episodes every other wednesday and subscribe on itunes Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.